If you love your spearfishing and you want to get better at spearfishing, this is the place to come, the Noob Spiro podcast, where we interview the world's best and we pump them for all their tips, tricks, and advice so that you can become a better Spiro. And today's episode is an absolute cracker. Today, we're speaking with none other than NorCal resident Jim Russell. Now, he's been spearfishing for decades and he's an absolute cracking Spiro and a great laugh. And we talked to him all about the conditions that are up there in NorCal, North California. That's right. So we talk conditions, um, sea temps, all those sort of things that you need to get it right. We talk about species and the techniques that you need to learn to hunt those fish in that area. Uh, We also talk about the monkey face prickleback. Yeah, I've never ever heard of it before, but apparently it's a legitimate thing. It could be pulling our leg, but we've got no idea because we just don't hunt over there. But the uh, monkey face prickleback, he's a state... Uh, record holder for that species and he talks to us all about his battle with his mentor and uh, how how he became a state record holder for that fish. Now this is a really funny episode but it's a long episode and it's got a ton of information. If you're looking to hunt that area of, of North California, this is the uh, place to start. It's, it's going to be an absolutely fantastic resource and uh, Jim holds nothing back. You get the whole box and dice here. But before we get into the show, I've got a few shout outs. Everyone's been uh, really active on social media and getting behind us. So for, for everybody that's reached out to us in the last fortnight, a big thank you to you. Um, and, and thanks for all the support and letting us know that we're doing things right or wrong. doesn't matter. Um, we just really, really appreciate it. So... Uh, John Ashley, um, he's been applying everything he's learnt um, on the New Spiro podcast, and uh, he's really enjoying his spear fishing. Uh, so, yep, yeah, good on good on you, John. Keep it up. Uh, also, the 2017 Freshwater Spear Fishing National Championships uh, in August uh, on August the 26th in Nebraska. So, Google that. Get behind that if you're interested. I'm not sure if nominations have closed or what's going on there, but uh, it was in the shout-outs folder, so giving it a shout-out. Uh, thanks to Yops for your review. Thanks, mate. I uh, really, really appreciate the uh, iTunes reviews. They really help us uh, rank so that more people can find us. Uh, Jason Ferrer, uh, he spearfishes the Mid-Atlantic, and he's looking to make a few spear guns for himself, some timber guns. He works in wood, so... Uh, for anyone else that's looking to uh, make timber spear guns, I suggest you get onto the Spear Gun Making Facebook page. Uh, there's a lot of experience there from guys, and you can ask questions and whatnot on there, and uh, those guys will help you out. Uh, big thank you and g'day to Rungi, I think it's Rungi Valance um, in New Zealand, and Tatum. Vaya Vananda, I hope I've got that right, and Andrew Bortignon, I think, or Bortignon, not sure how to say it, but um, thanks, guys, for those show suggestions and reaching out to us. We really, really appreciate that. Uh, thanks to Lee Dobson over in New Zealand. Um, getting a lot of love from New Zealand uh, this fortnight, but thanks to Lee over there and sending that uh, video from um, Stoneham Spiros, another great little vid from New Zealand. And basically, that's it from me. Thanks for all your support, guys, all your reviews. Um, Keep in touch on social media. We've also got the Noob Spiro group on Facebook. So if you're looking for a buddy, uh, get on there, or you're looking for advice, there's uh, plenty of guys there to help out. So um, jump on to our Facebook group as well. But without further ado, we'll throw it over to our anchorman, Shrek, and get into this episode today with Jim Russell. Guys, Spearing Magazine have joined the Noob Spiro podcast to bring this episode to you today. Now, Spearing Magazine are 
they're, they're actually they're the best spearfishing magazine in the world. I'm, I'm saying it. Turbo said it. Now you know it. And uh, <laughs> if you head over to Spearing Magazine, you can check out the team. They've got Jeremy Gamble, John Paul Castro, Sky Bailey, Christopher Landers. You have a look. There's some f- fantastic people they've got on staff, and that's why they produce the world's best spearfishing magazine. The photography is just popping. The stories are awesome. Turbo's been rejected several times, and uh, that's how you know it's top quality. So head over to SpearingMagazine.com. You can buy it. You can buy it at your local retailer in the US. We. You can even get the digital subscription online, spearingmagazine.com. I just want to give a big thank you to our sponsor, Adreno. You can find them at spearfishing.com.au. They are one of the world's biggest and best spearfishing stores and stock every piece of spearfishing equipment you could ever imagine. They've got three locations, Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne. So go and check them out in store. But if you are shopping online, save yourself some money. Use the Noob Spiro code at checkout to save $20 on all purchases over $200. So that is spearfishing.com.au and use the code Noob Spiro at checkout. G'day, Noobers. Today we are chatting with Jim Russell over there in North California. <laughs> uh, he, he dives out of Monterey. And I hope I'm saying that right. Probably not. But uh, Jim recently had some uh, some social notoriety with a video he shot over there just on the back of it, end of a GoPro battery. The thing's had 3.4 million views. Yeah. Jim wishes he had uh, spent a bit more time <laughs> with his uh, filleting, but he was trying to rush the job. But it's a, it's a cracker video, and the um, this fish he fillets, it's got brilliant blue fillets, which which has just had this huge appeal for the public. They're like, what the hell's going on with that fish? So anyway, Jim, it's great to have you on the show. Welcome aboard. Thank you. Thank you guys for having me. Jim, yeah, congrats on the video, mate. Um, that's We've uh, been podcasting, videoing, doing absolutely everything on social media now for two and a half years, and we still haven't even got close to 3.4 million <laughs> anythings across everything. So thanks, mate. We really appreciate you. Yeah, he just shot one at the back end of his video, and away he goes. Oh. Anyway, Jim, mate, why don't you uh, tell us how you got started in spearfishing? Okay. Um, well... Like, like you said, I live out here in the Monterey Bay area. I'm not from here originally. I'm from uh, New Orleans, Louisiana, which oh, yeah. is on the Gulf Coast, uh, uh, Gulf of Mexico over there. Um, I grew up always fishing with my dad, like a lot of kids, just going out and being on the water. And I actually uh, learned how to scuba when I was 15, so I got yeah. really into just being in the water whenever I could. And never really picked up a spear gun, though. Uh, it was just kind of sightseeing and bubble-blowing and hanging out and exploring, but always loved being on the water. Yeah. And then kind of took a break from the water for a while, went to college, got into rock climbing, got married, and then later on uh, moved out here to California and uh, had a young daughter and wanted some time away from the house. So would go down with her to the pier to go fishing, which basically meant take her in the stroller and buy a beer and throw the line out and watch the water uh, oh, yeah. get away get away from the wife and the family for a bit. So when I was out doing that, I saw these kayaks out there on the kelp beds, and I could actually see them catching fish where all I was doing was drinking beer and sitting <laughs> on the pier. So yeah. I started researching kayak fishing and found there's a great uh, community of kayak anglers out here in Northern California. And so I got a kayak, got out there, started fishing, and then realized right away that the uh, depths where we were catching fish were pretty shallow, you know, 30 to 50 feet. And yeah. sometimes the visibility was pretty good. And I was like, I can just dive down there and shoot these fish that aren't biting my hook. Yeah. So found some guys that were spearing and started, you know, following them around and getting out there. And th- that was pretty much it. Put the rod down, grabbed the gun and kind of never looked back. 
Yeah, awesome, man. So how, how old are you, Jim? you got a young family over there in Northern California. What do you do for a living? How old are you? I'm 41 years old. I just had my 41st birthday on March 12th, so a couple of weeks ago. Um, I have two young daughters. One is 11 and one is five. And I work for the federal government. There's a federal government agency here that has an office in, in the town where I live called Watsonville. It's a little town. Okay. And so I manage a little office and I don't got to get in the highway to commute or anything. And it's it's pretty, pretty nice gig. Pretty, pretty good setup. That sounds good, man. I mean, we're friends on Facebook, so I see you get out spearfishing quite a bit. I'm kind of envious. I take it... <laughs> <laughs> I take it a lot of the we were talking before the show you were saying a lot of the spearfishing you do is shore shore based and that has some huge advantages because mm. there's no fuel or boat dramas you, you're just pretty much out there as often as you can get down to the beach and you can head out for two hours versus sometimes when you go out for a, with a boat you sort of want at least a half day trip so how often are you getting out over there? So, you know, that's really one of the biggest challenges for me, even though I'm so close to the water. And like you said, a lot of the diving can either be shore diving or kayak diving, you know, kayak diving, you can still do, you know, a quick couple hours off certain beaches. But with the family and with the job and, you know, the wife and she has her career and stuff, it's still hard for me to get those chunks of time. So I my wife says I go every weekend. I say I go (laughs) twice a month. But really, it depends on what's going on with the weather and what's going on, you know, with family commitments. And if my daughter has soccer and all that stuff. So, you know, maybe about maybe about three times a month on average, I'd say. And and or or more, I'll go down. I can run down to the beach. You know, now that it's summertime over here, staying light later, I can get off work at three be in the water by 4.30, dive until 8, you know, and so yeah, nice. bringing home dinner. Nice. Yeah, nice. Right, a bit later, we're going to chat about Northern California in depth and some of the, the diving conditions and fish that you target over there. But before we get there, I wanted to dig into sort of maybe some early obstacles you had um, starting spearfishing. Yeah, you know, I think like a lot of people, I didn't really know what the heck I was doing. Uh, And so I was looking at at YouTube videos and looking at, you know, how I could get out in in and on the water as uh, cheaply as possible. So I was buying, you know, real uh, low quality uh, scuba fins and like a surf wetsuit and mixed match weights with all different colors. My friends actually called me Rainbow Bright because I had so many (laughs) just random mismatch stuff going on and you know i didn't really care i was just happy to get into the water and be exploring and and learning um and you know i think that was one of the biggest things really not really knowing what i was doing i didn't join a dive club right away i was involved in this kayak angling group and there were some divers there but they weren't really you know getting together on a regular basis and luckily for me i i kind of uh Without him really realizing it or offering, I kind of latched on to one guy who was well known in the community and just started, you know, watching where he was diving and what he was doing and what kind of gear he was using and picking his brain whenever I could. Yeah, and yeah. really, you know, he's evolved into a mentor and a good friend. So oh, I was cool. fortunate to, to, you know, have that opportunity and have that resource, um, which really helped me out a lot in the, in the beginning. Are you gonna are you gonna name him or are you gonna leave him? Yeah, no, his name his name's uh, Harold Gibson. He's a Hawaiian guy. He's oh man, in Northern California for a long time, and uh, he's just he's extremely humble and mellow. Um, his mentoring style is kind of unorthodox. Usually, he just makes fun of me and criticizes <laughs> me and, and ridicules you know the size of my fish or 
my shot placement or my pitiful bottom time. <laughs> what days and spots I choose to dive, you know. And so yeah. it's a little, a little different, you know, from what you would think of a traditional mentor. But yeah. you know, over over time, it's you know, it's worked, and we have a a good a good natured ribbing friendship. And uh, every now and again, he actually compliments me, and so I know when he compliments me, it's like, man, I must be doing something really good. Uh, <laughs> that's awesome. Why is he be making fun of me? So. Yeah, your, t- your tail starts wagging when you get that compliment. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, so and, and, and hanging out with him and learning from him and then just spending as much time as possible as I could in the water, figuring out, you know, fish behavior, the habitat, you know, how to read the structure we have out here. Um, a lot of trial and error, paying attention to where and when other divers were successful with different species. I think all of that, you know, helped me kind of start moving forward, you know, in, in the beginning. Yeah, wicked. And um, you've joined a club now, as you were sort of hinting at. What's the name of the club you're in? So I'm still mostly involved in this kayak angling club. It's called NorCal Kayak Anglers. It's online at uh, ncka.org. But beyond just kayak angling, we, you know, there's members on there that uh, do kayak hunting. So they'll be hunting ducks off their kayaks. They'll go archery, pig hunting. We've got divers. We've got foragers. You know, so really it's a great resource for pretty much anything outdoors in the Northern California area. And oh, that's I put cool. a, a lot of time online developing um, kind of the, the kayak diving and spearfishing section of the club, making sure that guys, when they want to get started, you know, there's some articles posted about different techniques and areas to go. And we actually have a, a little friendly year-long online competition called Diver of the Year that we oh, do. Cool. Where it kind of challenges divers uh, to push themselves outside of like their comfort zone. Like if you're really good at targeting, you know, lingcod and rockfish, but you've never t- targeted halibut or striped bass, you know, it forces you to really explore those different species and habitats and kind of expand your your knowledge base around all of Northern California. So, oh, wicked man, that sounds really cool. cool. Yeah, yeah, no, awesome. Uh, I'd l- I'd like to learn a bit more about some of those other activities as well. That sounds like a good diverse club i'm sure there's no shortage of stories when you guys go out for a beer no it's it's a lot of fun so it's a great resource it's a great community and we do a lot of different things we actually have uh different kind of charitable fundraising things that we do we do a, have a group called heroes on the water which takes um wounded veterans that have come back from war and get get them out in the kayak kayak angling or whatever just being on the water is part of their you know emotional and physical rehabilitation and it's a it's a it's a great group and then we also raise money throughout the year. We started this, uh, like, basically a fund called Pay It Forward. And one of our members got uh, cancer back in 2010. We wanted to do whatever we could to help him out. So started doing different activities and raffles to raise money to help him out. And then he ended up passing, but we kept on going with the fundraising. And since 2010, we've raised and donated over $80,000 to members of our club dealing with cancer and illness and tragedy. So... It's, oh, it's wicked, a pretty- man. That sounds cool. We'll link that up in the show notes so people can um, can chat about it. So if you just if guys want to search Jim Russell Noob Spiro, your show notes will pop right up and they can find out more details about your club in there. Sounds um, great. Yeah, let's move on to the next part of the show, Jim. Um, you, you've been sparing a while. Let, what's one of the most memorable fish you've you've shot? So I, I you know, you, you guys sent me the questions and I tried to think about it and. You know, it was it was hard because I think, you know, a lot of fish stand out in my mind. Um, but I think one of the most memorable uh, fishes in general is a, 
a fish called the uh, monkey face prickleback. Kind of. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like I'm one of Turbo's on. yoga poses. Are you taking the piss here? <laughs> no, no, I'm not. And uh, it's it's a very exciting fish. It looks like an eel. It's not really an eel because it has uh, pectoral fins. I guess real eels don't have pectoral fins, but it lives in kind of the intertidal zone. So in shallow areas, it hides under rocks. It looks like an eel with a little downturned monkey mouth. Um, it's an herbivore. They eat just uh, kelp and seaweed when they're adults. So they're kind of a funny fish. But the reason it's memorable to me is, you know, when I first started diving, obviously, you know, I, I wasn't diving real deep. I wasn't getting a lot of sexy fish. But, you know, if you, if you spend enough time poking around in the shallows, you'll find these, these monkey face. And uh, so I started shooting them and was really enjoying just shooting anything. Um, <laughs> and one, one day, it was back in uh, March of 2011, I went out in a day and it was, it was a horrible day. I shouldn't have gone out in the water. It was rainy and windy and horrible weather, but I went out of a really protected cove. was only able to paddle like a quarter of a mile out to one rock. So I kind of anchored up there, jumped in, found this monkey face, shot it let the wind blow me back to shore, and then went actually over to meet some buddies that were uh, fishing for the monkey face. But to fish for monkey face, they do what's called a poke pulling, where you get like a stick of bamboo, and you tie a little leader with a hook on the end of it, and put some squid on it, and then you poke it into the rocks, and then the monkey <laughs> face will bite on, and you pull them out. So it was such a horrible day. They were basically just sitting around drinking beer, you know, not doing anything. And I show up and I have a monkey face and we're all looking at it. I'm like, all right, cool. I'm drinking some beer. And then uh, one of the game wardens, fishing game, you know, kind of the, the fish cops showed up and checked my catch and my license. And he's like, that's a really big monkey face. He's like, you know, that's the biggest one I've ever seen. And I was like, oh, OK. And he's like, there's a, a fish market right down the road. You should go get it weighed. It might be a record. And I thought he was messing with me. So we yeah. pulled out the phone and looked on, online. The per current record wasn't that big. It was only four pounds, 12 ounces. And I was yeah. like, all right. So I went and got it weighed. And it tied to state record. So I submitted the paperwork. I was like, yay, I got the state record. <laughs> yeah. My friend Harold, who uh, I mentioned earlier, who kind of helped mentor me, he decided that I wasn't good enough to hold a state record. So he, <laughs> he, he probably went out and shot a much bigger one. And then I had to help him do the paperwork because he was too lazy to figure it out. So I helped him <laughs> submit it. He broke my record. And then um, in 2012, I went out and shot a bigger one to kind of one-up him. And then once again, he decided, no, nah, you don't deserve it. He went out and shot another one, broke my record again. So he had the record back. And then in 2013, I went out and got a really nice one. A uh, seven-pound, five-ounce monkey. Wow. And that was in September of 2013. And so far, nobody's broken the record since. Nice, so man. I have actually, I'm the three-time and current state record holder for the, the mighty monkey face prickleback. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good story, man. Oh, I like God. it. And you one up your mentor. That's even better. Yeah, I think he finally just got bored. He's like, all right. Yeah. I don't really like, he doesn't like shooting him that much anyway. He always gave him to me to eat. He's like, okay, I shot one. You can have it now. He's like, go ahead and submit my paperwork so I can get the record back. So I think he just got bored. But the, nah, cool. Yeah, awesome. All right, All right uh, Jim, mate, why don't you tell us about your favorite hunting technique and what fish and how you apply it to? Okay, so I think, you know, in general, a lot of the fish out here in Northern California, we're in the kelp forest, I'd say 90% of the time. And at the bottom of, you know, these giant 
kelp stalks, there's boulders and rocks and reefs. And that's really the area where we're hunting our fish. And if you're lucky, you, you know, you dive down and there's a big lingcod or a cabazon sitting on top of the reef or like a big rockfish just sitting there waiting for you. But often they're not. And they're hiding under the rocks, in the caves, in the cracks, in the crevices. So you end up doing a lot of hole hunting. So you really need a, a quality flashlight, pretty much as bright as you can get. And in, in the way I tell people is I kind of pretend I'm on like an Easter egg hunt. You know, it's like you never know where somebody's hidden that egg. It could be under this rock. It could be under that rock. Hmm. And every single rock you look under, you know, it could hold the biggest fish you've ever seen in your whole life. And you're never going to know until you poke your head and your, and your light and get all the way up in there and take a look around and see. So it's kind of a technique that works really well because you can do it at all depths. I've gotten, you know, really big lingcod in, you know, 10, 15 feet of water, you know, or wow. big cabazon. So a lingcod is like a big, it's got a lot of teeth and it looks kind of like a dragon looking guy. Mm -hmm. they're, they're, they're pretty exciting looking. They taste great. They got a lot of meat on them. Yeah. Um, the, the bigger ones come in during the winter time. Uh, the big females will come in from deeper water offshore into the shallower water to lay their eggs. And then, then they'll go back out and the smaller males will guard the eggs. So during the winter months, you have a, bigger, a, a higher chance of coming across a, a big female. Oh, um, so that, that's pretty exciting. And then cabazon kind of look a little like a stubby miniature version of a lingcod. But instead of having big sharp teeth, they have like grinding plates because they eat uh, crabs and abalone and different shellfish like that and just kind of crush them and grind them all up. So mm. lingcod and cabazon are two of like the really common ones that you'll find doing hole hunting. And then the monkey face prickleback. Um, it's actually, if you look it up online, it's become pretty popular in a lot of like fancier, uh, like chic San Francisco restaurants just because it's a, uh, a different meat. It's something off the beaten path. It's got yeah, a yeah. Firm, firm white meat that's pretty versatile. Um, and if you prepare it right, it, it can it can be really good. So, you know, I, I think they're, they're fun to hunt. Some people don't like them because, you know, they don't move. You just find them under the rock and you can just shoot them super easy. But um, I think they, they taste great. They make a great ceviche. So when you – yeah, I'm oh, sorry. I was going to ask, when you are hunting these holes, what, what size gun are you using and um, have you got any brands of flashlights you recommend? Yeah, so for a gun um, – I'm using probably 95% of the time a, a 75 centimeter uh, Pathos Laser Open Pro. Okay. Um, so it's a good size gun. It's still small enough that you can maneuver it into the holes to line up shots um, when they're when they're in the cracks. But if you see a fish out in the open, you've still got a little bit of range, you know. So a lot of times our viz here it can vary from you know two feet or where you can't even see the tip of your spear gun to on good days 30 to 40 foot. So okay. if it's a really cruddy viz day, I've got a smaller, smaller 60 I'll bring out because I know I'm not going to be shooting anything further than a couple of feet away anyway. So there's no <laughs> point in having a bigger gun to maneuver around. But if I had that 75, it's a good kind of in-between gun where I can get in the holes but still have enough strength, uh, power, and range, you know, something outside the hole, and i got to pop them a little ways away. For mm. flashlights, um, so the Underwater Kinetics, the UK – they make a SL4 ELD light, which is really common and popular up here in Northern California. I used okay. that for a lot of years and liked it. And then my buddy introduced me to um, a Subcraft 1000 Lumen flashlight, which is just stupid bright. And okay. uh, it's so bright that 
it's you can just basically just light up almost any crack and cave and see to the back instantly. And the other good thing about it for me is that it has rechargeable batteries. So instead of having to always, you know, be buying new batteries, I can just go home, get them charged 100 percent. And next dive, I'm going out with, a, you know, a, the brightest light possible, because sometimes yeah. if your batteries aren't fresh, it can make a difference between being able to see that fish in the back of the of the crack or not. So I was always replacing my batteries almost every dive, and it it got spending. So having that rechargeable capability, I really enjoy. Yeah, cool. All right, one thing I noticed with diving in caves, uh, I've just had a trip to New Zealand. It was the um, the surge. Um, it's you can p- get yourself in some awkward situations, forcing yourselves into these like these rocky caves and openings. Um, what's your advice to like new guys that are starting to do that? I mean, what have you learned along the way? Uh, mostly ju- just be careful and, and know your limits. And when you start, you know, getting under the rocks, uh, you, you, like you said, you'll be able to feel that surge and use your off hand or your light hand to kind of brace you a little bit. Um, and you can, you can time the surge lots of times. You'll feel when that surge comes and oftentimes end up waiting a little bit before I, if I, even if I've got a fish right in my sights, I'll wait until that surge passes. That way my shot's not going to be thrown off and it's also a good excuse if you ever miss a fish in a hole you can just be like ah the the surge got me that's why, that's, that's why i missed it it, it wasn't me but yeah. luckily for us you know a lot of the the features that you know lincod which are kind of one of the primary targets out here they hide in they don't like big open room caves so really we're not usually swimming all the way back into a cave usually it's you know a cave or a crack where they can be kind of snug in there where they can hide in there. They can lay their eggs. They can do their mating or whatnot. They can escape from, you know, seals. But the, it's a, a generally where you, you can usually crawl in maybe about waist deep, you know. So it's usually not too bad to back yourself out. Obviously, there's some situations where you're going in a little further. If you're doing that, definitely having your buddy there to spot you, you know, is a good idea. But 90% of the stuff I'm looking in, I'm probably only going about waist deep in and looking around. So okay, okay. <clears throat> these um these lingcod, Jim, will they will they try and run once once you hit them with the torch? Are they sort of stunned or are they or are they going to try and escape that hole or are they hold up for you? How does that work? In, in general, once they're in the in the crack in the cave, they're they're really pretty. Uh, they're, they're not very shy. They're not very skittish. They'll, you know, they'll see you and they'll see you lining up the shot and maybe they'll move around a little bit. But in general, they're not bolting right away, which is good, you know, because it gives awesome. you time. <laughs> it gives you time to line up your shot, you know, make sure like, all right, the surge isn't coming. Uh, I've got the light on it. I've got it, my, my shot lined up nice and good and pull the trigger. And it's generally not rocket science you know you're going for the head because that's got the most bones to hold the shaft and you know one one thing i've noticed you know some newer guys once they shoot the fish they're in a hurry to try and get it out of the cave even if they're running out of breath you know if if you shoot it and it's not coming out right away don't force it because you can you, know, you can pull the shaft out or you you know something like that so take your time if you give it a few tugs and it's not coming you got to go breathe go up and breathe you know if you're using a reel so, you know, bring the gun up with you, fall your real line back down. If you're using a float line, you know, just leave the gun and the whole setup down there. Go breathe up and then go back down and take your time, you know, extracting the fish. There's no point in, in rushing it. If you've got a good shot, it'll it'll still be there. So Yeah, good advice. That's awesome. Hmm. All right. Well, I think uh, I think we're done for hunting. Anything I'll, you want to add, Jim? Or, yeah. Oh, sorry, Shrek, what do you got? I was going to ask, like, um, one thing that's pretty famous, I'm not sure if the... 
to the north or the south of California, though, to be honest, is your your guys abalone. Um, do you, do, you, do you take abalone? I yourself? do. So you, yeah, um, we have abalone all over the coast. You're only legally allowed to take them uh, north of San Francisco, uh, or north of the Golden Gate Bridge, which is right north of San Francisco. Yeah. Um, so that's about two hours for me. So usually I'll make it up to go abalone diving a couple times a year. You know, okay. uh, last year I didn't go up to get any. I just had my wife was getting her master's and, you know, I'm such good diving right here. I couldn't justify taking a whole day to make a trip up there just for the snails. So, yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's very popular. It's a lot of fun. That's mm. like the true, you know, version of an Easter egg hunt because they're just stuck yeah. all over the box <laughs> everywhere, you know. Yeah. And when you're when I'm not one of the world's best abalone divers, there's guys out there that just take ones over, you know, 10 inches, which is considered like a trophy <laughs> size, whatever, yeah. Um, yeah. which is great. You know, the bigger ones, there's more meat, which is awesome. But yeah. if I if I go up for a day of diving and I don't find anything that big, I'm going to take whatever I can to bring home to eat. I'm not that picky. So. But it's a lot of fun. Um, it's super popular. There's been a lot of uh, changes in the fishery. They've been reducing the number you can take per day and the number you can take overall per year and then how many months it's open. There's a lot of rules and regulations. So my best advice to anybody that wants to go out lane diving, you know, look, look it up. Spend some time, you know, figuring out what the rules and the regs are and don't try and bend them or break them because this is one of the most highly enforced fisheries, I think, in the world. They've got yeah. guys out in the cliffs with binoculars watching you. It's it's not worth trying to, you know, get away with one. You know, the rules are not that hard once you figure out what they are. But, you know, if you met, if you do break it and they catch you, it's an expensive fine. They can confiscate your gear and your license and it's just not worth it. So Yeah, cool. I um I was talking to someone in New Zealand the other day about <laughs> about the abalone in California and I thought that because they are so huge, because in New Zealand they get big powers or they call abalone power in New Zealand, but and the southern states of Australia as well, actually. And it's quite a um, sought-after fishery for those that are in the know. But um, they re- it requires a fair bit of preparation with tenderising and all the rest of it. But these New Zealand guys, who I thought got some of the best powers in the world, had nothing but good things to say about the um, California abalone and how good nice. they t- they taste. And nice. uh, and. And the size of them is just phenomenal. They're huge over there. Yeah. I actually, I spent the last year or so diving with a, a guy from Sydney who was out here, took a year off work, and oh. his wife got a job here in San Francisco. So he was out here just taking care of their son and doing odd oh, nice. jobs. And I met up with him in a free diving class, and he, he'd gone abalone diving but hadn't really done some of the good spearing because he couldn't, didn't know where to go. So kind of took him under my wing a little bit. We oh, went nice. out and had a ton of adventures. And the day before he left, he never managed to get like one of the big 10-inchers, but I had one of the shells like left in my backyard still from a year or so ago. So I went and cleaned it up all pretty form, scrubbed it off, and got it all – because ours are bright red once you clean them up. Yeah, so I fell off and got it all pretty, and they gave it to him as a going-away gift. And he was oh, all nice. stoked and said he was going to show all his mates, and they couldn't believe how big it was and all that. So Yeah, cool, man. Yeah, cool. it was fun. Good stuff. Uh, um, we were talking about the lingcod. A couple other things I'll, I'll add real quick. Yeah. Um, so, you know, in general, like I said, we're hunting in the kelp forest, and lingcod are a real predatory fish. You know, they eat a lot. And lots of the times what they eat is uh, the different rockfish species which are around. And one of the really common rockfish species we have is called blue rockfish, and they'll form schools basically right above, you know, nice pieces of structure, nice boulders, nice pinnacles. And so if you find a school of blue rockfish hanging out like that, it's really worth your time 
spending some time looking around the cracks and, and the holes underneath that school, because oftentimes that's where they'll be. They'll want to find a, a nice crack where they can hide, but also have access to a food source. So if you find that school of blues, you know, don't just shoot a few blues and move on. I mean, the blues taste good too, but you know, spend your time once you find that school of the of the uh, the food source, looking around underneath for the lingcod, because oftentimes you'll you'll find a nice one right there. So uh, nice. yeah, good insight, eh? And then the other the other thing about lingcod, for some reason, you know, they often prefer hiding in cracks that face away from the prominent swell direction. So the swells coming from offshore, they'll like being on a crack on the inshore side of the pinnacle. So I think they just don't like a lot of that water movement splashing in their face all the time. So definitely, I know I, I found lingcod in, in cracks that face all different directions, but the general kind of consensus is, you know, a really quality lingcod crack will be one that faces towards the shore. So definitely spend a little extra time looking in, in ones on the inside, inside of those pinnacles. Cool. That's a, right. that's a very handy tip. Any 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 parting tips with your hunting technique? That's been a beautiful section, by the way, Jim. I would say um, one thing that that's really benefited me a lot. Um, so lots of times, lingcod and other fish uh, here in Northern California, the when you once you find the good structure, it'll produce you know time and time again. I've taken a lingcod out of a crack and then gone hunted somewhere else and come back the same day, and it's been another one that has moved into the same crack. And definitely, you know, throughout the year and year after year, like I said, the big females will come in and it seems like they know where the good spots are. So if you find a good crack or a good hole or even just a good reef, I, I have a uh, I'm kind of cheap, so I don't have like a fancy GPS unit, you know, but yeah. I have like a little app on my iPhone that costs 99 cents, Navionics <laughs> app. Yeah, and it, and it. it works great. So I'll mark, you know, different areas that I've, I've, I've found that I've had success with. And also, even if I'm just paddling around and I see like this patch of kelp, I was like, wow, you know, I don't have time today, but I want to come back later on and explore it. I'll mark it or even just staring at the Navionics app and looking at the different topography and seeing, wow, this pinnacle comes up from 60 feet to 40 feet right here. Maybe I'll check it out next week and mark it. And then I have a, a small, um, put a little dive weight on the end of a float line, just as a marker weight. And yep. so I'll, pad I'll paddle up to the spot I have marked on my Navionics app, drop the marker weight right on it, and then paddle off and anchor up or flip off to the kelp or whatever. And that way then my, my line is going straight down to the spot where I want. And okay. if you do it right, like I have cracks where, you know, I can paddle up to them, drop the weight clip up and then one dive down, look in the cracks, see if there's a fish there or not. And if there is, shoot it. And if not, move on to the next one. That way you can cover more ground and increase your chances of finding, you know, more cracks and more fish just by, you know, having those spots marked. And okay. if you don't if you don't have the GPS app with you, like I've had fish where I've seen a fish. One quick story. Um, it was La last year, uh, two years ago, I can't remember. Two years ago, I think my 39th birthday. I always like, and I hate working on my birthday. So we went went down with a bunch of buddies to an area called Big Sur, which is south of us, which is a uh, very undeveloped and wild, and has a lot more potential for big fish. And we went out diving, and my buddy um, had given me a, a new 60, and so it was a small gun, but it was it was great for all the fish I was shooting. But then later on in the day, I came across this big California sheephead 
which is more yeah. kind of like a ras. They've yeah. got like a big bump on their forehead, and they eat like mussels yeah. and sea urchins. And uh, they're more really more a Southern California fish, but there's some isolated populations up here okay. that have come up during El Nino events. And so they're kind of a prize for us because we don't get them that often. So yeah. I saw this big male, but with the 60, I just knew I wasn't going to get close enough or, you know, to take a good shot. So I passed on the shot. But I came up right away and took some aerial, some visual landmarks. I was like, okay, I'm a little bit inside this point, and there's a big boulder over there. And then as soon as I got home, I made some notes to myself and then went on the Navionics app combined with looking at aerial photography. I was like, I'm pretty sure it's this spot right here. And so I marked <laughs> it on my app. And that was in March. And I didn't get a chance to go back until December, December like 28th, like right before oh, the end wow. of the year. And so went there with some buddies. And I uh, I knew if I waited for them to get ready and we all went to the reef together, the chances of me finding the fish were slim because there's more guys diving the same spot. So I suited up super quick and raced out there, <laughs> dropped my marker weight where I thought the fish was. And four days later, I, I found him. So and and shot him and got him. It's my, still my biggest oh, sheep. Wow. So, you know, having those those landmarks, those marks on your GPS can really be beneficial in helping get you back to spots that are productive to, to get the fish that you're looking for. Wow, the world's longest stalk. Yeah. That's that, incredible. That is a, that, well, <laughs> you've, you've, you've really honed some of your navigation skills there, Jim. Um, when you were talking about uh, lining up with landmarks on the, on the beach, I got taught that in my early days scuba diving about getting something in the foreground and something in the yep. background. And then lining up on it. And if you do that in two directions, you can triangulate. And uh, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And it's funny how you've gone to all the work with Navionics and the aerial shots as well. <laughs> that's uh, that's pretty good. You could get so accurate with it. I don't think I could do that. <laughs> yeah, I spent I spent a lot of time procrastinating at work and looking at <laughs> aerial maps and yeah. Google Maps. And, yeah. you know, because, you know, like, like we we're talking about, a lot of the diving I do is off the shore. And, you know, for us here in California... You know, there's some stretches of shore which are real open where you can just go wherever you want. But some places there's houses, you know, it's fenced off, private property. You can't get to it. So if you look on a map and you see a trail going down or you're like, well, there's a beach and, you know, I can get to that beach. And if I paddle this way, it looks like there's some really good structure and pinnacles. You know, that can be gold, you know, and putting in that time not only to, you know, make a game plan in your head, but then taking the time away from going to where you know you're going to find fish, to where you might find fish. Yeah. Sometimes you know you're going to you're going to come home with an empty cooler, and you're just going to spend a lot of time in the water, swimming around, sweating. But sometimes yeah. it's really going to pay off, and you're going to have those adventures and experiences, and just kind of increase your your knowledge base of, of the coastline where you live and where you hunt. So yeah, nice. Someone wrote a guest post for NoobSpiro.com recently about three online tools to help find spots for yourself. Um, you, you mentioned Google Earth and Navionics are two great um, sort of bits of you know apps you can use to help you find spots. Was there any other websites that are real useful for that, Jim? For for the California coast, um, I'll have to double check on the website. It's the California Coastal Photography Project or something like that. And basically, it's um, pictures from aerial pics from the ocean side of every like square inch of coastline from <laughs> California all the way up to the to the Oregon border and they take pictures you know throughout uh, time as well so you can look back 10 years ago versus oh, right wow. now 
And so, and sometimes that really helps me because if they take a picture in a, in a time when there's no kelp or when it's really rough, it's hard to see what might look good and what might not look good, but you can click back in the years and be like, oh, look, this year it was super, there's the kelp. I can see where the pinnacles are. This would ah, be a good spot yeah. to go. So yeah. I can get you guys that, that link. I, yeah. I use yeah, it cool. a lot. So, so yeah, we'll, yeah, we'll put that in your show notes as well. Is, so. that, is that something you sort of do at work? Is it, Jim? <laughs> no, of course not. <laughs> <laughs> On my breaks and lunch, and when the wife's asleep. And I'm just a Classic favorite. public servant. <laughs> <laughs> Shrek, my diving of late has improved out of sight, and do you know why? No. Because I, I picked myself up a copy of 99 Tips to Get Better at Spearfishing. Wow. Is that why your hunting techniques have improved as well? Not just my hunting techniques, my freediving, my breath hold, and my awareness. Wow. You really are a Spiro 2.0. Yes, that's right. I really am a Spiro 2.0, as per Chapter 7, I believe, Spiro <laughs> 2.0. And it's all thanks to... 99 Tips to Get Better at Spearfishing. Now, what? where did I find it, you asked? On Amazon.com. <laughs> That's right. So get on Amazon.com and check it out. But in all seriousness, it's a great book compiled from over 40 contributors. It's absolutely fantastic, and you will improve your diving, guaranteed, if you read that book. There's tips there from legends like Rob Allen and Chris Coates out of South Africa to Simon Tripp and uh, some other Aussie guys. Lots of Aussie guys. Lots I think, of Aussie I think guys. there might even be some New Zealanders in there. There's Dwayne Herbert. Dwayne Herbert. Darren Shields. We've got Cameron Kirkconnell couple from myself there. I put myself in that same league. Yeah, so look, a Turbo's ones, we, we glazed over them. <laughs> and uh, look, I took, I often took 10 of Turbo's tips and punched them into one, so you get good value for money. Find it cheap on Amazon.com, 99 tips to get better at spearfishing. All right, next part of the show, toughest situation. So what's the toughest situation you've been in the ocean? What was the scenario? What was the scenario? What did you learn from it? Yeah, um, I was thinking about that for a while, and you know, I really haven't had like a lot of, you know, emergencies. You know, obviously there there's been days when I've gone out and the forecast was wrong or just turned really bad. You know, at the at the drop, drop of a hat and the fan turned on and needed to get out of there as soon as we could. But I've always been able to, you know, get back to my launch site, get back to my car safely. I do carry a uh, a VHF and, and a little emergency bag with some emergency supplies on my kayak at all times just in case something happens to me or, or the, anybody who I'm with. Um, I think one of the most uncomfortable and miserable experiences was I went out uh, shore diving down in Big Sur. So Big Sur, the, the coastline there, it's really rugged. And oftentimes the approaches involve, you know, hiking across fields and then scrambling down kind of cliffs to get to the rocks, to jump off the rocks and go shore diving. And so my buddy Harold and I had gone down and, you know, we got to the base to where we we're going to jump in and we hid our, our shoes and a little bottle of water and a little snack and the, the backpack straps for the dive board. So we hid all that kind of underneath the rock, went out diving and we had a great day diving. We shot, you know, five really big lingcod and some big vermilion rockfish, probably had like 70 to 80 pounds of fish. So we come oh, up back up. to the, Yeah. So come back to the shore and somebody had stolen our shoes and <laughs> stolen the backpack straps to the dive board, and the water and the water in our little like cliff bar snack. And, and so we had one little mesh bag. So I put all the fish in the, in the mesh bag on my back. 
and then Harold strapped all the guns and the fins and the and the float lines to the board and just held it by like one hand. We had to climb back up this cliff in our just you know little neoprene wetsuit booties, and all the rocks are super jagged and sharp. And then I made it probably about halfway to the car when I had to drop my weight belt. I was just too I was too beat, and so I dropped the weight belt, got back to the car with all the fish. And then I think Harold realized I was about to have a heart attack and die. So he let me <laughs> stay there and have a beer. And he went back and got my wave belt for me. So, uh, But it was just – it was really frustrating. And I guess a lesson for me is, you know, don't trust people. And if you're going to hide something on shore to come back to, make sure you hide it really good or, or take it out with you. You know, sometimes I've, I've taken – you know, my sneakers out, out out on the dive board with me now, which is kind of a pain in the butt, but at least then I'll make sure I've got shoes for the hike home when I get back out there. So That's a good one. It's, <laughs> we haven't had anything like that before, no. and it's just, it is something actually to think about, definitely. It's so annoying. Um, yeah. yeah, good stuff. Alrighty, well, I just I feel like we've just done Veterans Vault because we we're going to talk about um, North Cal and how to go about spearing North Cal, but I think we've ticked off pretty much all the main species so far. But uh, let's get into it anyway. We'll call it uh, the Veterans Vault and 2.8. And let's uh, <laughs> let's look at conditions in North Cal. Like I'm, I'm trying to figure out what are the best times a year of the year to go spearfishing in North Cal when you get your good viz and what right. fish are around and all those swell conditions because every place has a bunch of weather conditions that come together and produce really good conditions for spearfishing. So. Give us a rundown on how North Cal works. Yeah, so I think for us, you know, one of the main factors is the, the kelp. And so kelp, you know, it's a giant plant. It anchors on to the, to the rocks at the bottom of the reef, and it can grow up to a foot a day during the summertime. So it grows super fast, and it doesn't stop growing when it hits the surface. It'll hit the surface and lay over and make this giant carpeted mass and just keep growing and growing and growing. And it creates great structure for the for the fish you know they have like all different places to hide and it is great for the ecosystem but once it gets so thick and heavy it can make diving really hard um it's almost like night diving sometimes under the kelp canopy and then during the summertime it'll basically rot when just laying there on the surface so it all these little particles of rotting kelp will be in the water it can turn the water this nasty green and just make diving pretty unpleasant and really affect the viz. So in the summertime, that's kind of the pattern. You know, it's calmer water, but you're going to have a lot of this kelp growth. It's going to the mats are going to get super thick. The water is going to go from blue to green to murky to dark. And once the the wintertime storms start coming around um, in September, October, November, December, the swells will get bigger. And when the swells get bigger, they'll knock the kelp out. And so when the kelp gets knocked out, it kind of opens up the area so it's easier to dive. And the viz is better because all that nasty water full of the rotting kelp particles gets washed away. So we'll go from viz that's, you know, 5 to 10 feet to 30 to 40 feet within the span of a few months. And so wintertime is great diving. The problem is you, you have to get out in between the storms. Um, and, of course, the storms usually go like, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, it'll be horrible. <laughs> it'll be super rough, right, when it's your weekend and you want to go diving. Yeah. And then during the week, it'll calm down, and that can be very frustrating. But yeah. when you hit when you hit it in between those big swells, you'll have crystal clear water. You won't have to fight the kelp. And like I mentioned earlier, during the wintertime, the bigger lingcod will move in as well. So wintertime can be some of the best diving around. 
And also during the, the winter months, like January, February, right kind of just recently, uh, the uh, season is closed for fishing in the ocean for um, hook and line guys, rod and reel guys, but it's open year round for Spiros. Oh. So we're, we're <laughs> we go out there and we don't have any competition and there's less people in the parking lots and less people on the beaches. And it can be just a real special special time of year. But like I said, you really got to get in between the storms. And some years, like this year and last year, man, it seems like it's just been storm after storm after storm. But when you do find those windows, like two weekends ago, there's a small window. I went down to Big Sur and had a great day, shot my biggest vermilion rockfish, which is one we haven't talked about yet. It's a bright red fish. It's a beautiful fish. And I uh, had a great time down there and that was just a small window and then this weekend is complete har it's horrible next weekend is going to be horrible so i'm super glad i was able to take advantage of that window mm. so i would say definitely if you're planning a trip out here you know consider the winter months the fall months the early spring months that's when the biz is usually going to be better but be prepared that if there if the storms are up you're going to have to try and find the more sheltered areas and there are some shelter areas along the coast where you can go so pretty much whenever it's no matter what conditions are you can always find some little sheltered cove to jump in and at least you know shoot a few fish for dinner hmm. and what about water temp jim what's the range um generally low 50s um and during the winter in some spots it'll get up to you know high 40s it'll drop down to the high 40s so it's not too warm hmm. uh definitely seven seven mil suit is mandatory um, I know some guys in Southern California, they, you know, that's a whole different world down there, yeah. but I know they use thinner suits and, and they have better visibility and bigger fish. But up here, you definitely want, you want a seven mil, otherwise you're going to be getting cold and you're going to be cutting your dive day short. You know, once you get out there, you don't want to be in a rush to, to come back to shore because you're too cold. That's another reason why I like diving off my kayak. You know, if you do start getting cold or you start, uh, getting hungry or thirsty, jump on the kayak, take a break have a little bit of Gatorade, a snack or whatever, then you can get back in and you're not getting dehydrated or shaky. Mm. A turbo would probably take a thermos of some sort of um, hipster <laughs> tea or something with them. Uh, I'd, have, I'd have a bucket of chicken and we'd have a ball, I'm sure. So. Oh, you, can, you can bring whatever you want out there in the kayak, man. It's great. Mm. So yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm a huge fan of kayak diving. I'm sold. We'll get a tandem because Turbo will want me to do all the paddling, of course. <laughs> yeah, mate. I'm good at delegating. Stroke. <laughs> Stroke. <laughs> he'd call it like yeah. he was the coxswain yeah. or whatever. He's a coxswain. Yeah, yeah, he, yeah. He'd be a coxswain. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what is that even? Mate? I don't know. Oh. Uh, all right, so we, we have chatted a bit about the species. Um, what would be, it sounds like you've got quite a range there for temperate waters. Um, how many species uh, are you actually able to spearfish uh, often over there? Um, so lingcod, we talked about cabazon, we talked about a little bit. Yeah, they're another taste, very tasty fish. They're uh, masters at camouflage. Um, you can spend an hour looking at a boulder, and then all of a sudden, when you're look the same spot you're looking, a fish will appear, and he's been there the whole time. So that's one of my favorite species to hunt. Once I get, once I start getting tired, I don't want to be doing deeper drops. I can move in shallow. And basically just lay there and stare at the rocks and you'll see them amongst the algae and the kind of the swaying kelp and all of a sudden they'll you know come to life right right before your eyes and you can shoot them and delicious fish since they eat the abalone and the crabs their their flesh kind of takes on that flavor um so they're a great fish to to harvest and hunt they're also one of the ones that get that blue coloration 
uh, that like the Lincoln do sometimes, which is pretty cool. Um, and then beyond those two, we get, there's a gazillion kinds of rockfish, Uh, rockfish. They look like, I guess like a small snapper, you know, and they range in size from small to, to pretty big. Some of the bigger, the biggest one, which is definitely the most prized one out here is the vermilion and it's a bright red one and it's prized not only because it's it's pretty but because they get much bigger in size uh the world record is like 10 pounds eight ounces so it's still not giant but for for us it's a it's a good sized fish the one i shot two weekends ago was uh 8.76 pounds which for me was my one ever and they they live at deeper depths so it's rare to find them under 40 45 feet you know you get lucky in areas where there's little pressure and you can find them shallower, but usually they're between like the 40 and the 60 range. You know, that's where the spearmills usually get them and they're just less common. So once you, you know, if you get a vermilion, it's always a good day, you know, kind of Harold and I have a joke, red fish, dead fish. It's like, if you see it, you know, you're going to take it. You're you're usually not going to pass on one of those. Uh, um, Did you capture the footage of that, Jim? Because you've got a YouTube channel, haven't you? Yes. Yes, I did. It's on there. It's on my YouTube right now. So, We'll definitely link your YouTube channel up and people can come and have a look at some of the conditions as well. But um, I'll, I'll tell you, I, if you got time, I'll tell you a quick story about yeah. my uh, my most, my, my smallest vermilion, which is, we just talked about my biggest vermilion. Yeah. So right when I first started diving, um, I, you know, I, wa- I wanted to get the bigger and the sexier fish. You know, I was like, okay, I, the rockfish are all over. I got some link, I got, got some cabazon. Now I wanted to get the vermilion. I wanted to get, you know, the fish that was all prized. And yep. so I started looking all over and I finally found one. And unfortunately, it was only like eight inches. It was it was probably the <laughs> smallest rockfish I've ever seen in my life. And I still <laughs> shot it and I ate the heck out of it. Yeah. But when I shot it, I paddled back to shore. And when I got to shore, um, you guys might know his name is a guy named uh, Dan Silvera, who's yeah. pretty, pretty famous out here. Um, yeah. He holds the, uh, the world record for Lincoln. And he was on shore with the buddies and he's like, oh, how'd you guys do? And I had to show him my uh, my <laughs> giant eight inch vermilion. <laughs> and then right and then right then my buddy Harold showed up, showed up as well. So he ridiculed <laughs> me also and, you know, took a bunch of pictures and made fun of me. And then one of our my good, my good friends who lives right around the corner, his name uh, is uh, Amadeo Bachar, who does uh, marine illustration and art. I'll yeah. give you guys his link as well. Any, yeah, Sandy's work. All species, you know, from all areas of the world, he does amazing art. Oh, wow. And he was he was sponsoring one of our competitions, so he made a custom mini vermilion print for me, of eight <laughs> inch vermilion. And I still have it <laughs> on my wall to remind me like that. That's you know, everybody's got to start somewhere. So yeah, yeah, that's yeah. a reminder that that's where I started with the smallest vermilion I've ever seen ever. So. <laughs> and yet you, you had a former U.S. champion on the on the on the coast there to, to, to witness it. it. Was, so that's it was pretty, pretty cool. embarrassing. So. <laughs> <laughs> like you say, man, everyone starts somewhere and Turbo's, um, you know, just about everything he's ever caught have been in that sort of realm, so he understands completely. Oh, please. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes he holds up pictures of my fish. Uh, holds up my fish for pictures. <laughs> oh, but... mate. You are the driest spear I've ever met, anyway. <laughs> Uh, Besides the uh, the lingcod, the cabazon, the rockfish, and the monkey face, we yeah. also we get we get we get a halibut. So California halibut will get on in, in the sandy areas, the sandy right. areas in between reefs or off beaches around eelgrass patches, um, in certain bays. They're they're very common. So they'll come in during the summertime, 
kind of, you know, like the, the lingcod come in the winter to spawn, the halibut come in the summer once the water warms up to spawn. So it's a pretty seasonal fish, but the big females will come into the shallower waters during the summer. And if you're lucky, you know, and you spend enough time staring at sand in the right areas, <laughs> you'll, you'll find one. And uh, it took me three years of halibut hunting before I even saw my first one. Since wow. then, I've, I've I've had a lot more success and got some really nice ones, but it's definitely a, a learning curve. Um, obviously, I wish some people would have given me some more tips earlier on, like, okay, go here at this time. But you know, I think that's part of the process. If, yeah. if you don't work, if you don't work hard for something, you don't appreciate it. You that's know, true. for me, I really appreciate the species. What everyone I take, you know, I'm super grateful for. Um, so they're they're really a, a fun fish to shoot. You know, when you it's not it's not hard diving, you know. You, when you, they're laying in the sand, so you see it, you shoot it, and that that's pretty much it. But the, it can definitely be time consuming to look for them. And How big did I get these fish? So the halibut, my biggest one was uh, thirty one pounds. Wow, so it was uh, good fish. like forty two inches, thirty one pounds. I think like the state record taken on scuba was like seventy pounds. So wow. I mean, they get really big. The the Pacific halibut. Um, are the ones you see in like Alaska, the ones that get like 300, 400 pounds. Mm. You know, we, the California halibut are kind of like their smaller cousin down here, but they're still great eating, you know, and uh, beautiful fish. I mean, they're ugly, right? But they're, they're a lot of fun, a <laughs> lot, lot of fun to shoot. And when, when you shoot them, if you don't stone them, they'll take off and give you a good little tussle. So that's pretty fun as well. It's interesting you describe and, them like that. They're beautiful fish. Just a bit ugly. <laughs> yeah. Shrek, Shrek's mum describes him. He's like, oh, he's a bit, bit ugly, but uh. Uh, yeah. Thanks I think for that. The only other fish that's really like native to NorCal, which is pretty prized, is we've only been able to spear it since uh, 2013. They opened it up to spearing. Is uh, the striped bass? Ah, yeah. So they're uh, once again, they, they are actually. There's nothing ugly about these guys. They're they're really beautiful. Mm. They're predators, and they come in right about now. Right about now is the time to start looking for them um, in the spring summer months. And uh, they'll come in and they'll cruise the surf line right where the waves are breaking. And when the waves break and hit the sand, they'll stir up the uh, little sand crabs, these little tiny crabs that live in the in the sand right there. And so they'll just cruise the surf line right where that wave hits the sand and turns up that sand cloud and feed on these sand crabs. And I, you know, for me, I figured out a technique that works for me of just getting super shallow and, and basically surface shooting and just laying there and wow. being patient, waiting for the fish to come by. And I got oh, yeah. some real nice ones last year. I got a couple 30-plus-pound, 30 30 pounder. Oh, so, and it was funny because even the big ones like that, their bellies were just stuffed full of these tiny little sand crabs. And so for me, I was like, well, that's, that's what at least some of these fish are doing is they're just patrolling this break right here. So I'm just going to spend time and uh, wait for them. And, and it works. So it's pretty fun. It's, it sounds like a really varied place to spearfish. You got, you've got mm. some reef hunting in the rocks. You've got yeah, your halibut sand hunting at another time of year, and then you've got some some uh, surf break stuff. So yep, yep, it's, uh, it is. it's got everything, doesn't it? Mm. it it's it's pretty cool. And like like I said, I, I I live right here in the middle of Monterey Bay, Watsonville. If you look on a map, it's literally like right in the middle of the bay. So I'm pretty lucky that I can get out to the beach, you know, after work or for a quick morning session, be back by noon to take my daughter to soccer or whatever. Mm. And um, mm. you know, I really 
sometimes I think people take it take it for granted. You're like, oh, you know, I went out and I got a lingcod and a rockfish. You're like, man, we were diving like in one of the most beautiful places ever. You know, mm-hmm. maybe today you only got, you know, these these fish, but you never know what you're going to get. You know, there's mm-hmm. always the possibility that the next rock you look under, or the next reef you explore is going to have the fish of your lifetime. So I think sometimes you just got to stop and, and uh, kind of reevaluate and, and, you know, recognize how lucky we are to live and dive in, in this beautiful area. Mm. Um, like a lot of experienced ex- uh, people we've had on the show, Jim, I think, um, you know, your, your observation skills have um, sort of definitely taken their part. I mean, the way you've taken us through a lot of the species and what they eat, their behavior, times of year, you know, the places you find them, it's something that guys that have spent a lot of time in the water do develop with time. Are there any species in your part of the world that you think are particularly vulnerable to spearfishing and, um, you know, something that the younger guys need to be aware of? Um, because, you know, it is something that you, you probably only learn over time and often the fishing regulations aren't enough. Uh, you know, you have to have your own personal code with, with any with particular vulnerable um, species. Have you got anything like that there? Um, you know, for the most part, the regulations we have here in California are, in, in my opinion, you know, pretty good, you know, and, and they vary depending on what's going on with the species. For example, when I first started hunting lingcod, um, they were closed during certain months of the year. So during the winter months, when the females would come into spawn, they were closed. And the the idea, right, was you would give the big females time to come in and spawn, and you couldn't shoot lingcod until April. Okay, so that, that that made sense. But then they started doing all these studies, and they saw the lingcod population was booming. And when the lingcod population was booming, they were eating all the rockfish. So the rockfish populations were decreasing. So then they opened it up year round. It's like, all right, now you can shoot two lingcod per person per year. And then the lingcod population was still booming and they were still seeing declines in rockfish, especially one rockfish called the black rockfish. It's similar to a blue rockfish. I think, you know, lingcod eat up, feed it, feed on it a lot and it's really, eat, they're easy to catch on hook and line. So they ended up decreasing the number of black rockfish you can take per day. You should be able to take 10 per day. Not, then it was five per day and now it's three per day. And then the lingcod limit per day is actually decreased as well i think like okay you guys have taken so many now it's back kind of where we want it and now it's back to two per day so for for whatever reason you know i would say that the regulations we have out here in california are they're adaptive and they change depending on what the scientists are seeing with with the populations of the species now i'm not a scientist do i know if they're really doing the right thing no but um i think if you you know going out and taking two lingcod per day at, at least for me, I don't like freezing fish. I like eating fresh fish. And, you know, I've got a family of four, plus I've got a lot of friends and other family members in the area. So usually the first thing I do when I get back to the beach is I call my wife and I say, okay, I got X, Y, and Z. You know, do you want to have so-and-so over, your coworker, you know, and then they, they, they come over and they'll bring their kids and their kids play with my kids and the, they'll bring the wine and the beer and I'll cook the fish. So <laughs> you know, I think everybody, like you said, has to have their own personal you know ethics and codes obviously some people that don't live as close to the ocean as you as i do they'll take whatever they can to go home and freeze it because they're not going to get to dive again for another few months and mm. and that's fine yeah. you know but me i'd rather treat the ocean as kind of my my, my freezer you know yeah. and the fish are <laughs> out there you know I, I just need to go out there and get them when i want them and if i don't get any well then it's another excuse to go back out and get some more later on um i guess the only thing i would say is 
like lingcod and cabazon, they're both egg-laying species, and the males will guard the eggs once the once a female has laid them, and you can actually see them. So during the winter months, you can see male cabazon sitting on top of the rocks next to a patch of eggs. Yeah. And if you shoot that male cabazon, then those eggs are going to get get eaten by somebody else, and none of those fishies are going are going to live. So yeah. for me personally, when I see a cabazon sitting on a rock, you know I've kind of train my eyes a little bit to look around see the patch of eggs and it's kind of cool you can look at it like oh wow look at all those eggs and then you know not spear the fish you know maybe i'll yeah. mess with it film it and poke it a little bit but I won't <laughs> now, now yeah. wh- whether or not that you know le- it's it's totally legal to take that fish and i would never you know, um put somebody down or or ridicule them for doing so because you know, just because that male is guarding the eggs, if I go and shoot the female that's underneath the boulder that's bigger and fatter, once I shoot her, she's not going to be laying any more eggs either. So, mm. you know, I just don't yeah. personally like taking either cabazon or male lingcod. I've seen male lingcod with a white nest of eggs sitting there, and I just don't like shooting them. But yeah. that's just my personal, um, you know, ethics. And I'm sure I've messed up in the past and shot a fish that was guarding eggs when I didn't see the eggs. Yeah. It, so for me, if it's legal and you're following the rules and you're not wasting the resource and you're sharing it with your friends and your family, you know, th- I, I'm fine with that. But as you develop as a Spiro and you spend more time in the water, you know, you'll realize just because you pass on that one fish doesn't mean you're not going to find another one. So if you see one guarding the eggs, it makes me feel better about myself personally, yeah. you know, to not sh- to not shoot it that's perfect I guess- that's, that's exactly why i asked the question jim because um and that was the an exact example of of what does happen with guys that spend a lot of time in the water and thanks for sharing your personal thing it's good to hear how well managed the fishery is there and uh because in lots of other parts of the world they manage the fishery but it's not done using science or any right. real or any real idea of what's actually out there and so it sounds right. like you guys are doing a good job in general over there what yeah. In general, I, there there's some species like abalone right now. There's guys that say that the abalone fishery is being managed very poorly and not based on real science. But you know, I'm I'm not a scientist. I'm not an expert, I, and I don't spend enough time diving for abalone to really have a whole bunch of opinions on it. You know. Yeah. But I think for the, the fish that I encounter, I think it's really well managed. Hmm, cool. All right. With um, Northern California in general, I, I just want to wrap it up. There are some listeners that will no doubt be interested in traveling to your part of the world. What what advice would you give them in general for finding people, uh, good retailers, clubs, people they can hook up with and connect with if they want to dive your area? So as I mentioned, there's the, the NorCal Kayak Anglers uh, Forum. I'll send you guys a link, nckia.org. Um, for anything kayak-related on the North Coast, um, we have divers that are going out, you know, every day of the year out there. Another really good website forum that I belong to and I'm active on is called NorCal Underwater Hunters. I guess I you guys a link as well. Okay. I, would rec- I would recommend joining up on both those and just posting, you know, a message saying, hey, I plan on coming out there and looking to meet up with somebody to show me around. I've taken a bunch of uh, newer visiting divers out. Um, like I mentioned, the, my Australian buddy, we became really good friends. I dove with him for a whole year. I took out some guys from New Zealand a couple of years ago. They were oh, out cool. traveling, and they posted on a couple of the different sites. You know, those two sites. They posted on Spearboard, which you know yeah. it's a different different world over there. Some of the guys aren't aren't so friendly. Whatever. <laughs> Our forums here in North Carolina, you know, it's more like a community. It's less yeah. about you know, bragging and showing off and, and whatnot. But, you know, Spearboard's fine. You know, that's another place. 
Um, and then uh, for in terms of getting the gear to to hook you get you hooked up with, I'm sponsored by um, a company called Red Triangle Spearfishing. Okay. And they really spe- specialize in the guns, the lights, the the wetsuits, the float lines. You know the re- the kind of gear that's going to help you have the most success out here on the Northern California coast. Is that um, is that GR Tars business? What was that? Is that GR Tars business? No, it's no? Uh, Matt oh. and Matt and Susie Lopez, Red oh. Red Triangle Spearfishing. Wow. Turbo's just shaking his head at me. Sorry, sorry about that. Turbo's trying to have a guess, but okay, that's all right. Uh, yeah, they do great stuff, and they're. They're really, really supportive of the different events that we have out here in the community. They're always donating prizes, um, oh, cool. guns and wetsuits and lights and stuff to our prize tables. So I really appreciate what they do for our community and definitely great guys to check out. Pretty much all the gear I'm diving with, uh, I've, they've helped me get and uh, I, I think it works great. So, cool. and if you're, if you know, for kayaks, you can rent kayaks, you can borrow kayaks. If you sign up on those, on the NorCal kayak anglers or NorCal underwater hunters, People will have kayaks you can use and take you out. You know, if not, you can give me, you know, shoot me a PM. And I, I'm sponsored by a kayak company called Jackson Kayak, which makes great kayaks for out here. And so I've okay. got several kind of laying around in the backyard, always able to t- take people out. So ah, I'm nice. no problem. Yeah. When when so. Shrek and Turbo do their world tour of of North America, we'll we'll have Why to not? stop by. <laughs> sure. <laughs> It's going to be wild. And, 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 and likewise, in return, if you're over here, Turbo will take you out on one of his project boats that might be finished by then <laughs> one day sometime yeah, in the future. Yeah. <laughs> hey, you, you, you joke. My buddy in Sydney, he's told me, so you got to come out here. I was like, yeah. all right. Yeah, man. I'd like to one day, you know, get the wife and kids out there too. We've never really traveled over that way, so I know they'd love to. So, General Big Mac. Definitely, definitely stop by this neck of the woods, Jim, and and come and enjoy our spearfishing as well. Um, All right, let's wrap up Veterans Vault. Uh, Turbo, any last questions? That's pretty comprehensive. Yeah, if you can't shoot a fish on that sort of knowledge. Yeah, in old cow no. something wrong. Great section, Jim. I've got I've got one more one more tip I'll oh, throw for, on there since I wrote right it down off. and I'm not good at writing and I wrote it down so I'll say it. So I see <laughs> lots of guys sometimes they'll they'll want to mount their their light on their spear gun. Yep. To, to look into the hole and, and the idea which makes sense is okay the light's pointing right where your gun is pointing and that that's great. But these fish, like I said, they're really not skittish, and it takes a lot more effort to maneuver your gun around with a light on it to see every nook and cranny of these yeah. cracks. They're not always just you know a flat crack. They go up and down and around and around corners. It's a lot easier to move your hand or your wrist and really light up every tiny every tiny nook and cranny behind every boulder or rock that's back in there to maneuver your whole gun. And then once you find the fish, then you can put your gun to play and line up your shot. So okay. for me personally, that's what I find really works better is not having that light mount on the gun, using your hand in the light to find the fish and then lighting up the shot. So awesome. That's great. G'day guys, if you're new to spear fishing, I highly recommend listening to our episode Free Diving for Spear Fishing with Pete Ryder. Pete uh, is an entrepreneur and an excellent freedive instructor, and he has come up with two great courses, the 10-meter freedive and the 5-minute freediver. I've used the 5-minute freediver to increase my bottom time, found it incredibly useful for my trip to the Coral Sea, and I cannot recommend it highly enough. His other course, the 10-meter freediver, is a great resource for those just starting out that literally want to get to 10 meters, and this course will help you learn proper breathing technique and some of the safety aspects associated with freediving. Use the code Noob Spiro 
to save 20% on all of Pete's courses. He's put together this deal just for listeners of the show. That's at howtofreedive.com. Use the code NoobSpiro. Things are looking pretty grim around the NoobSpiro podcast uh, studio. We were late on our rent once again because NoobSpiro had pretty much sucked all the money and life out of us. <laughs> but thank God Sparing Magazine has come on board ah, and we've made rent once again. The world's best Sparing Magazine as well with our name in it. Yes! Yes! <laughs> oh, I'm so hungry. <laughs> Next part of the show is the funniest thing. So this is normally where you share something something funny along the way that's happened to you while yeah. you've been spearfishing. All right. Yeah. Uh, so like I think most divers, the poo story, right? The, co- <laughs> the, 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 the code brown. Um, so... <laughs> <laughs> this one happened, I think, last year, and you know, it, it it's like diving one on one. As you go, you go to the bathroom before you get in the water, right? But no, even regardless of that, it's going to happen eventually. So I kayaked out about two miles from the bathroom, and then anchored my kayak, and I was a couple hundred yards away from my kayak, and had the the, the clench, you know, the feeling, <laughs> and so race like mad back to the kayak. Jump in the kayak, uh, weight belt off, wetsuit top off, bottoms down. And then my kayak luckily has a, a scupper hole right in the center in front of my seat to mount like a fish finder scupper right there. So I was able yeah. to just scoot right over the scupper hole and, and uh, take care of business. But unfortunately, you know, th- there wasn't enough suction or movement for it all to go down. So it's kind of piled up. <laughs> and so I had, I was like anchor, I was on anchor, so I'm paddling on anchor trying to get enough water movement and suction, you know, so I'm paddling in a circle around my anchor point, so finally it was all washed away. And then I look up and I was diving right underneath a 17 mile drive, which is one of the most famous drives in the world, and there was a busload of tourists. <laughs> And I swear to God, they had their, their binoculars out and they're all looking right at me in my little charades and shenanigans out there so uh, that was pretty embarrassing just preparing a burly bomb good stuff what do they call burly over there again chum chum Chum. the brown the brown chum Good yeah, story. so I, I, I was going to, you know, either the Code Brown or that, that viral video of that Lincoln. To me, that's just, it's the most hilarious thing. And, you know, my wife and friends are like, really? That's the video you made that got all these hits and views and everything? Yeah. Because I put a lot of time into lots of videos of, you know, big fish and cool stuff with different effects and things like that. And none of those get any views, you know, or anything. <laughs> That's the one you put 30 seconds into. They got 3.4 million. Exactly. Oh, my wife told me, she's like, you're going to film in the backyard? She's like, it's all messy out there. Don't do it. I was like, ah, nobody's going to watch it anyway. Yeah. You know, I was like, whoever watches my stuff. And then I, I filmed it. And then I was like, oh, crap, baby. I was like, it's gotten like a million views. She's like, what? Yeah. My backyard? So... Like I said before, if I knew if I knew it was going to be so popular, I definitely if that combination was going to result in popularity, I would have chosen a bigger fish yeah. and then taken my time on the fillet job instead yeah. of just trying to rush it as quick as I could before the GoPro battery ran t- out. Uh, the oh. first thing I noticed, I, was, I looked and I thought, "Geez, Jim could have cleaned up the backyard, mate." <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think I, th- I think the reason it went so viral was because of the brilliant blue fit uh, coloured fillet, like like. Uh, 
I know you linked up some of the science behind why those fish are, are as sort of brilliant blue as they are, and I'll link the video up in the show notes so listeners can have a look. But um, can you just run us through why they are so blue, Jim? Yeah, so both uh, lingcod and cabazon, and actually another fish species called the greenling, um, sometimes they get a pigment in their blood called biliverdin. And the pigment in their blood turns their, their meat, their flesh, their whole body that bright, brilliant blue-green. And yeah. uh, the thing that is, you know, kind of annoys me is the scientists really don't know why some get it and some don't. And, and you know, I've heard scientists say, I live right next to Moss Landing Marine Labs, which is basically like a university where people go and get their master's and PhDs in marine science. And I've work with these people and donated fish carcasses to them to do stuff. And I'm like, why did the fish turn blue? And they say, well, we assume it has to do with diet and habitat. But then I've gone to the exact same reef on the same day, shot two female lingcod, the exact same things in their bellies, and one's bright blue and one's regular white. And I'm like, so diet and habitat doesn't fly with me, you know? Mm, it's really, yeah. It really is kind of a mystery why some get the Billy Verdon and some don't. I mean, they, I think, you know, they look prettier and I always like getting them because of how they look and it trips out my friends that come over. Um, I think maybe sometimes I think they taste better, but I, I don't think they do. I think they both taste the same. And then, you know, as soon as you cook it, it turns regular white. So it doesn't really affect the flavor. There's nothing bad about it at all. People sometimes are like, oh, my gosh, it's Fukushima radiation. <laughs> I was just going to say, some of them might have had a reaction to your jump. <laughs> but, no, it does. It, it has absolutely no negative effects on the fish. And there's, it's just a, a cool anomaly that I guess, I, you know, when I posted that video, some website posted that 20% of the lig cod get it. And I was like, okay, I don't know where they got that fact from or that number. But mm. I'd, I'd say, you know, 20 to 40%. You know, it's not, it's not uncommon. It's something that we see really frequently. It's always nice to, to see one just because they, they look pretty. It's something kind of out of the ordinary. But it's not anything super freakish that should generate three and a half million views. Huh. And then the other thing is sometimes they're like really bright blue and sometimes they're just kind of blue. So I guess sometimes they have more of that pigment in their blood versus sometimes just a little bit. Hmm. So sometimes you get the whole like rainbow of fillets from bright blue to kind of blue to regular. Hmm. Um, they're, they're a pretty cool fish. They taste great. Yeah. Uh, definitely my, my favorite fish to cook because they're really hard to mess up. Halibut, hmm. if you cook halibut too long, it turns really dry. Lingcod, yeah. man, even, even I can cook it well. It's like you can make <laughs> nuggets out of it. You can make steaks out of it. You can do anything you want with it, and it, and it all tastes great. So Awesome. Oh, yeah. I've learned a lot about um, the lingcod from you, actually. Well, I, uh, from Shrek, because he actually <laughs> linked up your stuff, I think it was. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. I was telling him all about this blue this blue flesh and how it turns blue this morning goes you're an idiot i posted that up you just read one of our posts that <laughs> inverted comments we put up uh, just normal <laughs> informative stuff on the noob spiro facebook page oh, that no, turbo no, got hold of so uh, cool all right jim in your dive bag you've mentioned a fair bit of your equipment already you're sponsored by red triangle and their kayak company we'll, we'll go into that but what's in your dive bag head to toe for this cold water that you're diving generally up there in northern california all right um so i, I wear uh pathos foot pockets for my fins with uh, okay. blue tech blades they're nice. kind of a medium uh medium hardness stiffness whatever whatever the correct term is yep. i'm not the world's most uh delicate guy so 
gives me some some force going down, but I don't have to have too good of finning technique. Uh, we wear <laughs> out here a lot of guys it call the Argos booties, Argos neoprene booties. They've got nice soles on them, so that way when you're walking around um, on the rocks or stuff beforehand, you're not tearing up your your neoprene booties. Nice. I've got a Pathos high waist uh, Thera seven mil suit. Um, like I said, the seven mil is a necessity out here, and the high waist is great for when you have those code browns. That way, you can just get the pull the top up and pull the bottom down without having to get the whole high, uh, Farmer John uh, shoulders free. How uncomfortable uh, is that in cold uh, water? Yeah, that sucks. Uh, yeah. uh, it, I, it's fine. They're good. It's a great suit. So, uh, um, the uh, on the on the weight belt, I've got a Salvamar weight belt with uh, little wedge weights, kind of like a little more streamlined weight instead of the traditional scuba blocks, which I like. And then a knife. And then I know you guys out there, people always, whenever NorCal guys post up videos online, everybody says you're crazy. You got a stringer with fish on your weight belt, but. It, you know, sharks, re shark, we have sharks out here for sure, and they're big sharks, but they're not really coming after the fish on your belt. So it's pretty common for guys to have a, a mono stringer uh, on their weight belt just to keep those smaller rockfish without having to swim back and forth to the kayak or your float all the time. So, okay. so I, I know... I know out there it's a whole different world and having you know yeah. a fish on your belt could really you know cause a shark to come into you a lot uh a lot more often but it that's not really an issue out here do you guys so, ever use a speed spike and then you just chuck it through the eyes or the gills and and it sort of goes up the float line by itself i i know some guys that use those the problem i i would see with that is when we're diving through the kelp so much ah it's, yeah yep yep it's gonna end up getting tangled around so usually if i'm using a float line I'm just letting it float free, and there's no real float on the end. So I've got my kayak over there, and I've got a 75-foot float line, yep. and then it's snaking behind me. And if I shoot a fish, it's just still going to be down there. I'll still be able to see the float line to go get it. Mm -hmm. um, I switched over to a reel a few years ago just so that's less stuff to drag around. I'm really loving the reel. But for the float line, definitely you know, in and around the kelp don't have it clipped off to anything or you're just going to you know make your day miserable trying to drag it all through the kelp with you so and then so, go ahead no no you, you're right keep going uh dive watch i've got a oceanic f10 which is okay. great i don't dive that deep or stay down that long but to make sure i'm you know getting my surface interval and resting before i go down again yep. pathos gloves uh the one my favorite pieces of gear is the uh the subcraft thousand lumen dove light dive light with the rechargeable yep. batteries like i said that way i can always have fresh batteries and i'm not spending you know money on fresh batteries every time i go diving i uh, think a, i think a friend of a friend owns that company they're over in greece i believe yes i think i think they are yeah, yeah. you got yeah, that so, one right well done anvar mufasilov <laughs> who we've had on the show before his friend owns the company that they that they seem like they're making some innovative equipment over there i'm looking forward to seeing a bit more of their gear yeah, so he's got he, he's my buddy who owns Red Triangle. I've been working with Subcraft on these lights and then on some wetsuits for us out here as well. Oh, cool! So yeah, really great stuff. Everything I've tried from them, I really like. Cool. So and then simple Spear Pro mask and a J snorkel. I don't even know what it is. Just a simple yeah. one. Um, yeah. For filming, I just have the GoPro on a head strap and I just wear it under my hood. I know a lot of guys, you know, have fancier setups where it's attached to their mask and and all that stuff. And I've always just wear it, worn it on the head strap under the hood. I, I don't find that it lets water in 
or messes with me. I've never lost one, you know, wearing it under the hood like that. So it's nice and simple. Um, and then spear guns. If I'm going out of my kayak, I'll my, I'll bring three guns just because I can. I'll bring the uh, the seventy the seventy five with the reel that I'll use. Like I said, ninety five percent of the time. And I've got a ninety. Uh, if it's for for us out here, that's a, that's a pretty that's a bigger gun. It's got a lot more range on those really good vis days. I can bring that out and just, you know, have a little more range and be able to take down bigger fish if I see them kind of off in the distance. And then a 60 for really low vis days where yeah. I can just, I know I'm not going to be shooting anything further than a few feet away anyway. Mm. Uh, I mentioned uh, I've got a, a float line. I got a 75 foot float line with a marker weight on the bottom. And I'll use that to mark spots and to get back to spots that I already have marked on my GPS. And sometimes if I'm diving with it and exploring, um, when I'm breathing up, you can kind of just jig the float line and the marker weight will just kind of bounce on the bottom and just make a little noise. And sometimes that little bit of noise will bring in lingcod. Um, ah, so it. hook and line fishermen, they fish, it's really just a piece of a hunk of like, you know, rebar with a hook on it. And all they do is bounce it on the bottom. And that noise and the, uh, you know, shininess of the hook and the rebar will bring the link out and they'll bite it. So for me, if I'm going to be breathing up for a minute or two and I'm right next to my float line and marker weight, I'll just jig it a little and figure it gives me a little extra ability to kind of attract fish, almost like a flasher, but, you know, on the bottom. Yeah, using it's, noise instead of light. Yeah, no, awesome. <clears throat> Good and stuff. Then I've got my iPhone in a high-tech Ziploc bag yep. uh, with, my G- with my GPS app on it. With your Navionics, yep. Yep, with the Navionics app. And then for a paddle, uh, I'm sponsored by Aquabound, which makes great paddles. Uh, okay. And I'm using their Surge Carbon. It's a really lightweight paddle. I what love the- it. Uh, when I first started paddling, I didn't think that you know it was worth spending the extra money to decrease the weight of the paddle but when you're paddling for hours into the wind it, it can make a really big difference and it's just a, a, a pleasure to paddle with i really like it and then for a kayak i've got the uh, jackson kayak kraken 13.5 foot um it's a beautiful kayak and it has a uh, large center hatch right between your legs where you can yeah. open up the hatch and i shove my fins my gun my weight belt my wetsuit top everything in there close it back up that way, when I'm going in and out through the waves and surf launching and landing, I'm not worried about losing any of my gear. It's all nice and safe and stowed securely there inside my kayak. So oh. I think it's it's a really good feature for, for any kayak out here on the northern California coast. Um, nice. Once you get to the spot, I've got a uh, – it's called a kelp clip. It's a funny-looking little thingy, and you <laughs> squeeze it, and it opens <laughs> up, and you grab a handful of kelp. Make sure the you know the kelp is solid and not going to rip off and clip to it, and it's super bomber. It works great as long as the kelp is healthy. And then so I have that combined with a you know a regular little grappling hook anchor. And so if there's no kelp during the winter time, I'll use the anchor. If in the spring and summer there's kelp, it's a lot easier just to clip off to the kelp rather than dropping the anchor and then dealing with it getting stuck and all that. And then right. finally, I've got a little emergency bag, dry bag with the VHF. Um, a flare, a whistle, extra dive light, a little quick clot pad in case somebody, you know, cuts himself or gets bit, something that can uh, stop some bleeding real quick just for an emergency. So I like to keep that tucked inside the kayak as well. Awesome. All right, All right Jim, any other um, no- notable gear you, you carry or keep in the car or anything else? 
No, I mean that that's pretty much it. I like to keep it as simple as possible. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean that that's a, still a lot of stuff, you know, yeah. but with the kayak it's it's great cuz you can bring all that and it's not slowing your day down. You know, you can keep it on the kayak and if, you know, a band breaks or or anything, you lose a shaft, I've got my backup gun, I'm good to go. So, you know, I'll bring some you know, some snacks out there, but pretty much that's it. Awesome, man. Guys, if you're looking to improve your freediving and spearfishing, a good set of fins is pretty much mandatory. And the best fins going, in our opinion, are the penetrator fins. So get online, get on to penetratorfins.com and check out the full range there of composites and carbon fiber fins. Composites are tough as nails, they're a fantastic fin, and the carbon fibers are the most reactive fin going. We absolutely love them. Can't kill them either, had them for years, they're still going strong. And the best thing about this is, now we have a code for you guys. So if you pump in Noob Spiro at checkout, you'll save yourself $20 on a set of these great fins. Add to that, we, we now can offer you $25 flat rate shipping internationally. That is absolutely fantastic and a full international warranty from penetratorfins.com. So there's no reason not to get in and get yourself one of the most important pieces of spearfishing equipment. That is a good set of carbon or composite blades. So get in there now, check out all the great designs and get yourself a set of penetrator blades. All right, last part of the show is this faster paced round of questions called Spiro Q&A that Turbo came up with. Oh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Terrible segment. He hates it. But uh, anyway, what is the single best piece of advice you've ever been given for spearfishing? I would say uh, make the most out of each dive. You know, regardless of the day or the conditions or if it's fishy or not, there's always going to be lessons to be learned about the conditions, the location you're at, the fish species you're hunting, and yourself, you know, how you respond to different situations. And mm. really bringing home the actual fish is just a byproduct of the whole experience. And if you look at it like that, you're never going to have a bad day. You're always going to go out and make the most out of each day and enjoy the experience for what it is. All right. If you had to start spearfishing all over again, what would you do differently? Um, I would probably say get quality gear the first time around instead of buying the cheapest stuff I could. Because when I first started, people told me, oh, get this and get that. And I said, nah, I don't need all that fancy stuff. And they were right and I was wrong. And I wish I would have <laughs> just bought the, the, the stuff they recommended the first time around. All right. During all your, your years spearfishing, what is the single biggest lesson you've learned? I would say don't give up on, on a dive day. Um, you really never know when you're going to come across your best fish of the day. You know, keep looking until the very last minute possible. Uh, some of my best fish have come at the very end of the day when my partners had already called it quits and they were sitting back in the kayak. And I was just, I knew I had, you know, half an hour more before I had to be, you know, heading home. So I was just putting in those last few drops or hunting in shallow, looking in every hole I could and came across, you know, the fish that made the whole day for me. So, so never give up because you never know what you're going to find. All right, cool. Who is the best person to go spearfishing with and why? You know, I would say either really good friends who you know can handle any situation you come across, so you don't got to worry about what's going on with them, um, or visiting guests. Like I mentioned before, um, I had a great time showing my my Australian buddy around, some guys from New Zealand. A couple weekends ago, I took some Canadian free divers out, and I think the reason why I like taking guests out is because, uh, like I mentioned before, we can sometimes take for granted how awesome the area is that that we dive in. 
and showing a guest around and showing them the kelp forest, showing them the species, you know, reminds you of how lucky you are to get to dive in this area whenever we want. And you don't have to worry about them telling people about the spots you take them to. You can take them to all your secret spots and you know they're going to be over there in Canada or Australia and they're not going to tell anybody. So I like taking guests out. Yeah, good point. All right, last question, Jim. This is a real Shrek one. It's real it's deep, all right? So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I got to... Could you describe what the spearfishing experience means to you in just one sentence? He said that so majestically, didn't he, Jim? <laughs> What's it mean to you, Jim? You're a dick. Okay. <laughs> let, let, I'll give this a shot. All right. Getting to play in and explore the ocean while hopefully bringing home fresh fish and ocean goodies to share with family and friends. Oh, nice, love it. nice. You guys probably completely your, ruined my question there. <laughs> No, that was good, Jim. It's been a bloody absolute pleasure to have you on the show, Jim, and uh, get someone so knowledgeable, particularly in that part of the world. And um, and uh, I've really enjoyed watching your videos along the way. And um, just it's completely different over there. And, and like I said, just a real pleasure to have you on the show. Something different for us. Yeah, awesome, mate. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate the opportunity. Uh, hey, is there any um, parting piece of guidance for our audience or, or maybe something you want them to come and have a look at online? Um. You know, I would, I'll, I'll give you guys my, my links to my, you know, Instagram and all that junk so you can yeah. post that. They want to follow my adventures. Yeah. And if you're, look, if you're looking for gear, like I said, Red Triangle Spearfishing and Jackson Kayak and Aquabound Paddles and uh, Orion Coolers is also part of Jackson Kayak. They make high-end coolers like Yetis, which are really awesome. So if you're all looking right. for gear, give those guys a look. Um, and if you come to NorCal, check out uh, NorCal Kayak Anglers and NorCal Underwater Hunters. And if you actually live here in NorCal, definitely visit ncka.org and look for the competition that I help run uh, called Diver of the Year, D-O-T-Y. It's a really fun year-long comp, challenges divers to target different species all along the NorCal coast. We get some really great prizes, brand new kayaks, brand new coolers, brand new spear guns. All the proceeds go to our Pay It Forward fund that my buddies and I started and um, we've raised and donated over 80,000 bucks to members of the uh, the NorCal community in need. So if yeah, you live weird. here in NorCal or you're going to be diving out here, please give us a look. Look me up, and if you have questions, I'll, I'll do my best to steer you in the right direction. Awesome, Jim. Uh, I'm going to link all that up in the show notes. So, again, if people want to find it, just pump in Jim Russell Spearfishing. You'll probably pop right up there in the search results, and people can find Links to all of the stuff we've talked about in today's this show. Will probably show up. Probably, like sometimes. <laughs> Google, so you're doing it Google, or not? Google Noob Sparrow has this love hate thing, but uh, <laughs> hopefully they can find so, you all right over at noobsparrow.com. So, like I said, absolute pleasure to have you on the show today, Jim. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Awesome. Good on you. Thanks, Jim. Okay. Bye bye. Well, that concludes today's episode with Jim Russell. A big thanks to Jim Russell, and we hope you got something out of today's episode, particularly if you are in that NorCal area. Now, our next fortnight's episode is a one on 101 on overcoming common issues. Now, we've identified a bunch of common problems that people have coming into the sport and share our advice and resources on how to overcome those problems. Now, thanks for listening, and if you have uh, any questions, reach out to us, Turbo at Noob Spiro, Shrek at Noob Spiro, Noob Spiro on Insta and Noob Spiro on Facebook. Um, send us an email, get in touch, share your questions, your knowledge, join the Facebook group. 
And as we all know, every good Spiro needs a good supplier of good equipment. Now, you can find that good equipment at spearfishing.com.au. That's right, our show sponsor, Adreno. Their online store can be found at spearfishing.com.au. And if you use the code NoobSpear at checkout, you'll save yourself $20 on all purchases over $200. So get online and check those guys out. Thanks for listening today, guys. Look, if you are seriously interested in becoming better at spearfishing, then go over to Amazon.com. Get your hands on an ebook that Turbo and I have written. Yeah, that's right, guys. We have put pen to paper and we've come up with 99 tips to get better at spearfishing. That's right. Head over to Amazon.com and leave us a review because the only people to review the book so far were Levi's mum and my mum. So 99 tips to get better at spearfishing. Thank you. Thanks to our mums too, our two favourite ladies. Yeah, thanks for listening today, guys. See ya. <laughs> 